Well, our study is in the book of Philippians, but not tonight, meaning we won't get to verse 1 tonight. I, because of the overwhelming theme of this letter, I call this a prequel, not even an introduction, but a prequel to, to Philippians. Joy and happiness. Because joy is written all over this book and written all through this book. So, let's begin. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the pursuit of happiness? Well, if you're like many, your mind will go right to the Declaration of Independence, where we are given, according to it, inalienable rights by God. Remember these words? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Maybe your mind goes back to a movie that came out in 2006 called The Pursuit of Happiness about a struggling salesman. His wife leaves him. He loses his apartment. And he's forced to live on the streets with his son. Well, wherever your mind goes, it is a reality that people do pursue happiness. And I'm certainly not saying it's wrong to be happy. It's no sin to be happy. Happiness is not a sin. Unless you're doing sinful things to make you happy. What about the pursuit part, though? Is that wrong? Is it wrong to pursue happiness? Is it even a legitimate pursuit? Is it, is it attainable at all? I don't spoil movies usually. I don't like to tell you what it's all about so you already know what's going to happen before you see it. But I saw this movie and I liked it. And I'm not going to spoil it now. Uh, I won't be spoiling it if I read this quote from the, the main character. He said, It was right then that I started thinking about Thomas Jefferson on the Declaration of Independence and the part about right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I remember thinking, how did he know to, per, to put the pursuit part in there? That maybe happiness is something that we can only pursue and maybe we can actually never have it no matter what. How did he know that? That's the end of that quote. Well, Thomas Jefferson may have wrote that in the Declaration of Independence, but he had, a, had had some help from a man named John Locke, who I would argue was not a Christian. Uh, Locke believed in man's natural uh, right to life, liberty, and property. And then Jefferson made it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, though, for many, that's, that's the goal of their life. You've, you've heard it, all I want is to be happy, or... All I want is for you to be happy. For some, it's a perpetualist pursuit. It's a never-ending pursuit with no consummation. But when you get there, if you get to happiness, does it stay? Once you've reached the goal of happiness, does it remain? Can you lose it? And if it does stay, does it stay on its own? Or do you have to do something to keep it from going away? How... Do I stay happy? Here's a quote from John MacArthur. People today are consumed by the passionate pursuit of happiness. 
self-help books, motivational speakers, and advice columnists claim to offer the key to happiness. But for many people, the door remains locked. Unable to control their circumstances, they find happiness instead. They find themselves instead controlled by their circumstances. When their job, relationship, or house, or in the case of Christians, church, fails to make them happy, they dump it and look for a new one. But on the merry-go-round of life, they can never quite seem to reach the brass ring. Having fruitlessly pursued happiness through pleasure and self-gratification, they arrive at the jaded view of life expressed by the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, that would, make, that would seem to make happiness an external thing. Not the emotion itself. I mean, when I'm happy, that's, that's inside. That feeling is not outside me. It's, it's internal. But what got me to that state of happiness was external. There, there is no internal mechanism that generates happiness. There's no internal apparatus that generates happiness. It's interesting to me that this is even acknowledged in secular quarters. And here's a quote from Psychology Today. Quote, it says, happiness is external. It's based on situations, events, people, places, things, and thoughts. Happiness is connected to your hope for a relationship or your hope for a future with someone. Happiness is future-oriented, and it puts all its eggs in someone else's basket. It is dependent on outside situations, people, or events to align with your expectations so that the end result is your happiness. Pursuing happiness, is that the American dream? It's, there's even a website called thepursuitofhappiness.org where you can learn about the history of happiness and the science of happiness. Here's the introductory paragraph to um, the history of happiness. It begins like this. The psychological and philosophical pursuit of happiness began in China, India, and Greece nearly 2,500 years ago with Confucius, Buddha, Socrates, and Aristotle. We can find remarkable similarities between the insights of these thinkers and the modern science of happiness. On the following pages, we explore the ideas of major thinkers from East and West who devoted much of their lives to the pursuit of happiness. And then on that page, there's, picture, there's 20 pictures with links to their pages, and they're going to tell you about the history of happiness. And out of all those 20, there was only one that I recognized that had any connection at all with Christendom. And then there's a section called the seven hap habits of happy people. That got my attention. And I would not argue with any of them. I think they're all good and I think that they're all true. So here they are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, just read the headings here. These are the seven habits of happy people. 
One, relationships. Two, acts of kindness. Three, physical well-being. Four, flow. That has to do with motivation and, and having a goal. Here's one, spiritual engagement and meaning. I will talk a little bit more about that one here. Signature strengths and virtues. That's discovering your, and using your strengths. And then there's one called the habit of positive mindset. That's optimism, mindfulness, and gratitude. When I read stuff like this, I like to go to the Bible and see what it says about these things because the Bible's been teaching this all along. For instance, relationships. The New Testament epistles have 60 places in the, 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 the epistles alone that talk about one another. Um, for, for instance, Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Or Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. One of the habits is acts of kindness. Proverbs 19.22 says, what is desirable in a man is his kindness. And Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. I am going to read the summary under their heading, Spiritual Engagement and Meaning, because they put that in there like that's one of the seven habits of being happy. And it says, Discovering Meaning, studies demonstrate a close link between spiritual and religious practice and happiness. Spirituality is closely related to, this, to the discovery of greater meaning in our lives. Of course, when sites like that mention spirituality, they're not talking about Christianity exclusively. They mean any religious or spiritual practice that will that'll work. But we know as Christians that the only real meaning of life to life comes from knowing God. That's question one of the catechism, isn't it? What is the chief end of man? Well, the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then one more I'd like to dwell on just a little bit because I, I touched on that recently from up here under positive mindset, optimism, mindfulness, and gratitude. It says, treasure gratitude, mindfulness, and hope of all the positive emotions studied in the relatively young field of positive psychology, gratitude has perhaps received the most attention. Grateful people have been shown to have greater positive emotion, a greater sense of belonging, and a lower incidence of depression and stress. No argument for me. From a Christian worldview, though, Gratefulness. This is from desiring God. Gratitude gets at the very essence of what it means to be created, finite, fallen, redeemed, and sustained by the God of all grace. Ingratitude was at the heart of the fall and at the heart of what's fallen about us to this day. Romans 1.21 says, although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. One of the things that characterizes the last days, which we've been living in since Jesus went back to heaven, is ingratitude. We see it in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 4. But realize this that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. One of the things that grieves me the most is this ungratefulness. Well, on this website, there is a certificate course. There's a happiness quiz and a depression test that I actually took a few years ago, and I still have those results. And uh, here's the results of my happiness test. I, it says you collected 109 out of 115 points. You are an expert. You don't need much guidance about life skills that contribute to happiness. But if you'd like to assist your miserable fellow human beings, read more here. And then I took this, this depression, depression test that really surprised me. Because um, if you know me at all, I'm usually pretty happy. I've never imagined myself ever to be depressed. But I took this test. And the result was this. I have minimal depression. I, I, don't, I didn't figure that out. So I took it again, and I cheated. Um, I, I answered every question in such a way that I would get a perfect score. And then I got the same result. I have minimal depression. So what about it? I mean, why all this talk about happiness and its pursuit? Well, now I want us to consider another word that usually goes along with happiness, and that word is joy. Joy and happiness. Are they the same? Are they different? If they're different, what makes them different? Well, if you do just a simple word search in the Bible for these two words, in all their forms, you'll find happy 19 times. And two times in the New Testament. And I'm not including all the synonyms for that, but you will find joy over 400 times and 130 of those are in the New Testament. So is there a difference? Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Earlier I said there was one man on this website out of the 20 who I would connect to Christendom at all. His name is Thomas Aquinas. And R.C. Sproul actually includes him in the heroes of the Christian faith. And this is what Thomas Aquinas said about, about happiness. It is impossible for any created good to constitute man's happiness. He goes on to say, it is evident that nothing can satisfy man's will. Everything ever, except what is universally good. This is to be found not in any creature, but in God alone, because every creature has only participated goodness. Therefore, God alone can satisfy the will of man according to the word of the Psalms. And 102 verse 5 says, 
who alone satisfies your desire with good things. Therefore, God alone constitutes man's happiness. So the conclusion, our ultimate desire lies in absolute perfection, which can only be found in God, the absolute being. So is there a difference? Well, think of this. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight upon some present circumstance. It's related to happenings or happenstance. It's actually related to the word hap, which carries the idea of chance. So happiness isn't something that you can plan. Um, I guess I could plan to be happy, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be happy when that time comes. True joy, though, in the biblical sense, is nothing like that. First of all, joy is a gift from God. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And in Jeremiah 15, verse 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And this joy, this biblical joy, is a permanent possession of every believer. It doesn't, you, your joy can go up and down, I guess, but it is, it is a gift from God and it is a permanent possession. It's the gospel that brings the joy. I like this definition that someone gave for joy. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Here's another thought. There is a real sense in which true joy is only known by its contrast when there's sadness and sorrow and difficulty. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6.10 As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And in 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And of course, who could forget James, right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So a biblical theology of joy teaches this. One, it is a gift from God. Number two, God grants joy to those who believe the Gospel. Three, it's produced by God the Holy Spirit. Four, it's experienced mostly as believers receive and obey God's Word. That's when it's experienced most fully. And believers' joy is actually deepened through trials. Number six, joy. Believers' joy is made complete when they set their hope on the glory of heaven. I mean, there's, there's a, on January the 31st, 2024, 
there are a lot of things going on around me that I'm not happy about. But I still have joy. So if happiness is circumstantial and fleeting, then, well, joy is not. It is the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls all the events of life. No matter what's going on around me, I know that God is in complete control. Not only is He in complete control, but every single event that happens from the the biggest headlines to the smallest things that happens that nobody will ever even know about were all ordained by God before the world began. So my joy is wrapped up in that. Jesus said this in John 14, 24. My peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This peace, though, isn't the absence of conflict. It is the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 7. So then, there's no, um, there's no internal mechanism that can generate happiness. But the same can't be said about joy. Because true joy does come from within. But not from a mechanism. True joy comes from a person. Galatians 5, 20 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Every person born from above has the Holy Spirit living within them. And that is where true joy comes from. In fact, God God commands it. Being joyful is a command. He says simply in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. So it's a command, and we're not to rejoice just sometimes. It says rejoice always. So what does all this have to do with Philippians? Well, the theme of Philippians just happens to be joy. The Greek word in its noun form or verb form appears 16 times in these four chapters. Paul mentions Christ 50 times in this book because that's where joy is found. You won't get joy by pursuing it. Pursue Christ and you'll have joy. In church history, the book of Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. James Montgomery Boyce says this, any Christian who is feeling down or discouraged about anything should study Paul's great letter to the Philippians. This is true because of Paul's circumstances when he wrote it. He had been kept in prison for two years. Caesarea without trial, and he was being held for an unknown amount of time in Caesar's jail in Rome. He had survived the perilous storm on the Mediterranean Sea. He had been deserted by most of his friends. Others, even Christian leaders, had spoken against him, hoping to get him into even more trouble with the government. He was facing possibly possible execution for his faith. Terrible. Yet no book in the Bible is so filled with joy as the book of Philippians. 
But it's not just for the discouraged. In the few chapters of this book, the four chapters, most of the major doctrines of the Christian faith are covered. In in chapter 3, Paul expresses his personal goal in regards to knowing Christ. We know this. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. My prayer as we go through this book is that will be said of us. Tonight, though, before we actually get to the text of Philippians, I thought it would be good to start with a little bit of world history. So our trek will actually begin in 360 B.C. in eastern Macedonia or Macedon. That is when the city of Crenides was settled by some Greek colonists from a Greek island off the west coast there called Thasos. An important thing to know about this area was very rich in gold mines. It's said that that area produced over a thousand talents of gold per year. Well, the city was soon attacked and they looked for, for protection from a man named Philip, better known as Philip II of Macedon. So he responded and I'm sure he had, interested, had interest in that gold. Well, he was successful and then he refortified that city in 356. And then he renamed it to, well, you guessed it, Philippi. Well, we can understand why he was so interested in that city. Besides the rich farmland and the gold, he controlled the main entrance into Europe from Asia. And it was situated on what would later become the ancient Roman turnpike called the Ignatian Way. It was a great roadway. It covered almost 700 miles. It's the actual road that Paul would walk into Philippi from Neapolis. Philip had a son you may be familiar with. His name was Alexander the Great, who was greatly influenced by Aristotle. He led numerous military campaigns and founded Greek cities all across Western Asia. His conquests made Koine Greek the means of communication throughout that world. In Koine Greek, in other words, it's the common Greek. That is the language of the New Testament. Well, fast forward now of about 410 years to the book of Acts. Toward the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It's said that over the course of Paul's ministry, he traveled over 10,000 miles and established at least 14 churches. Four of those churches were found on his first missionary journey in the southern part of Galatia. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Well, at this time in the book of Acts, he's back in Syria, where we read this in chapter 14, verses 27 to 28. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And he spent a long time with the disciples. Man, you can imagine the excitement that guy had telling about everything that God had done. Well, that gets interrupted. And in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, it says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these Christians at Antioch are all stirred up now because they're getting taught something different than salvation by grace alone. So Acts 15.2 says, And when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So they do. And after settling the most significant doctrinal issue of all time, what must I do to be saved? They return with two more men. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Along with a letter affirming what the church at Antioch was taught from the beginning. And so they lifted that burden of legalism from them. Well, Paul and Barnabas pick right back up where they, were, where they left off by teaching and preaching. But Paul wants to go back out, check out how all the churches are doing that they preached to on that first trip. But they have a sharp disagreement there and they end up going separate ways. And now Paul takes Silas with him and the second missionary journey begins. As they revisit the churches, the Bible says they were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. It's at this time that Paul meets Timothy. And we read this in Acts 16, verses 1 and 2. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lustra and Iconium. So Paul takes Timothy, and Paul will be that man's mentor for the rest of his life. I say that Paul knew right from the beginning what we've been trying to learn for a few years, and that is that we should always be about securing the gospel for the next generation. But you know, Paul wanted to go to Asia this time. We know that because of what it says in Acts 16, verse 6 and 7. They passed through Pergam and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to work or to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So he wanted to go a little bit further north and east, but the Lord wouldn't let him. And so we're reminded of these words from Proverbs 16, verse 9, that says, The, man, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Who knows what would have happened if Paul would have went to Asia instead of where he went. Only God knows that for sure. But here's, here's one thing. If we believe that God is absolutely sovereign and that He's ordained everything that would ever happen, and He is, and He does, and He has, then what we know that is this. Nothing could have happened than what did happen. So Paul's in Troas now, and he sees a vision in the night. And it's a man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so he heads that way right away because he knows that's where God's calling him to preach. So in Acts 16, verse 12, he arrives in Philippi where the verse said, says that he stayed for some days. Well, by this time, Philippi is a Roman colony. It's the home of Roman soldiers who are discharged, veterans from the army, and they're given allotments in Philippi. 
As a Roman colony, the, the citizens uh, enjoy the, all the privileges and rights of Roman citizenship, and they're exempt from taxes, and they're governed under Roman rule. The city's actually modeled after Rome, Rome now. It's got the arches and the bathhouses and the temples. As a Roman colony, religious life, though, centered around emperor worship, and if you weren't involved with that, you were actually considered subversive. And this is how it would have been when Paul arrived. But there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. The rule for the Jewish people was in any city you had to have a quorum of at least 10 Jewish men to even establish a synagogue. So Paul didn't begin his witness to Christ as he would normally because he would always seek out the synagogue. Instead, he went outside the city where he preached to some women by a riverside. This is where we meet Lydia of Thyatira. She sold purple fabrics. She believes the gospel along with her whole household. And Paul is hosted in her home. This is where the first Christian church in Europe starts. Well, Paul gets thrown in jail here for casting out a demon from a girl who was a fortune teller. And her masters were really upset because uh, she made a lot of money for these guys. But while he's in jail, he has the opportunity to preach the gospel and who gets saved but the jailer in his household. Well, he was a Roman citizen. So when they found out about that, they, were, they weren't... They were sorry, I guess, uh, in a worldly kind of way. So they give him a public apology. The magistrates do and how they treated him because, because he was a Roman citizen. And he ends, up, he ends up in Lydia's house again where the Bible says they were encouraged and then he left. Well, it would be about eight to ten years from, from that moment that Paul would actually write back to the church of Philippi in what we know as the letter to the Philippians. And he did that from a prison cell too. And so now just a little bit about this, this letter. It's sort of a rarity when you compare it to his other letters to other churches, meaning that this isn't one where he had to do a lot of straightening out and, and uh, give a lot of correction. Um, there's, no, there's no disputing that Paul wrote this. But there is, not, there is not a consensus on which prison that he wrote it from. He did write it from prison. Everybody agrees. But they don't all agree on what prison he wrote it from. The traditional view, and the one that seems to fit all the timelines, is that he wrote it from Rome, from the Roman prison. The letter also refers to the Praetorian Guard, which was an elite unit of the Roman army. There are some views that Philippians is actually a collection of multiple letters. But that's easily refuted. And um, you do that because you go by the text. The arguments that focus on the text refute the argument or the theory that this was actually multiple letters. As one writer says, all the theories of multiple letters rest on conjectural speculation, not on textual evidence. There's one thing I found interesting as I was getting ready for this. In ancient times, in Hellenistic letters, that's cultures that are influenced by, by Greek culture, 
in Hellenistic letters and essays on friendship, there's a certain motif. And there's friendship language in this letter of, of Paul to the Philippians that have parallels to these themes. And I'd like, like to tell you what they are. One, there's affection. We see that in Philippians 1.8 when, when Paul says, For God is my witness how I long for you. I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Another, another parallel is partnership. This is our word koinonia in Philippians 1.5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. One is unity of soul and spirit. We see that in Philippians 2 verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One is like-mindedness. It's the same verse. Make my joy complete. And then there's yoke fellow. Philippians 4.3 Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's giving and receiving. In 4 verse 15 he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. There's common struggles and joys. These are all parallels to what Hellenistic letters would call friendship letters. Philippians 1.30 says, Having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. There's absence and presence. Friendship letters often refer to personal presence and absence. And you know, Paul said he longed for them and he promised to see them again. There's virtue friendship, and that's opposed to friendship of utility or pleasure. Those are about friendship. Those friendships are all about how it can be beneficial to me rather than a virtue friendship, which that's what Paul had with the Philippians. There's a moral paradigm. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Paul's love for the Philippians was special. And it may have been that this, the strongest bond he had with any church was probably this church in Philippi. And a big reason for the major theme of Philippians is because of their love for Paul. It brought him much joy and encouragement while he was in prison. So it's no wonder why all of church history has called Paul's letter to the Philippians the letter of joy. And next time, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1.